Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. Father, we thank you for this awesome opportunity to come together and to discuss the Bible, to discuss theology, to discuss uh, your heart towards us. It's so awesome to be in a place where questions are welcomed. It's okay to have a question about something and even agree to disagree at the end. It's a beautiful thing to be sons and daughters, to be brothers and sisters, and to just rally around and talk about your goodness. Talk about the way that we see you and the way that you see us. I pray tonight that revelation would happen, that repentance would happen, that we would change our minds and we would see you just a little bit differently. And then we would in turn see ourselves a little bit differently. We thank you for this opportunity, Holy Spirit. Have your way in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 I'm going to turn you loose, brother. Let's welcome Bishop Jamie Engelhart. Thank you, man. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you, Pastor Andrew. Good evening, everybody. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, Pastor Andrew and I, we talked about it, I think, a couple months ago. And then just kind of... Uh, about three weeks ago, decided exactly kind of on the theme. And he said, hey, listen, uh, you just did this new book and it's full of all kinds of stuff that people would be asking questions about. So let's just do that. I said, that sounds like fun to say the least. And so uh, first of all, it's great to be here. Always enjoy being able to hang out uh, with your pastors. Uh, Enjoy their friendship. And good to see you all that made it out, first of all, on a Wednesday when you normally don't have one, and on top of it, in this weather. So God bless you all for being here. Well, I want to get right into this. And um, first of all, uh, back at the back, uh, I will have, uh, matter of fact, you guys are only, I think, now the fourth uh, church that I've been to, where I've actually had the actual copies of the books. Uh, they've been on Amazon since October. Uh, Kindle, I think the middle of November, but I finally got all my copies in. And so uh, also at the back, we'll have those for you and uh, I'll be there to sign them to do whatever. But the book is called Myths and Mistranslations. And it actually started uh, two years, almost two years ago now is Facebook post. And by the time I got to 30 of them, people were like, can you like compile these? And it dawned on me, I was actually writing a book on Facebook and I had no idea. And so then we, I stopped at 70 and we're going to look, we'll see time wise. We're going to look at about 10 of these a night. And after each one, we'll allow, uh, any questions that you have. And, uh, cause each of these uh, are only about a page or page and a half, and they were not written. Each of these could actually be probably 70 books all by themselves. Uh, there's people that have written whole theological, you know, debates on them and everything else. My main focus is to get people to think about what they've always been taught. There's a lot of things that we just swallow because it was taught to us from someone that we love. You know, but part of, part of our struggle many times is not receiving that which is new or different. It, it's what we learned it from and who we learned it from. If it was our grandma or if it was our mom or my dad, I tease my dad all the time that nearly all 70 of these are stuff he taught me. And so I sat there before and my dad and I have had long discussions because he's pastored 53 years now. I said, dad, where'd you get that from? And he's at least honest. And he's like, I don't know. I think old Roberts or Jimmy Swaggart said it. Somebody, you know, somebody said it and we just regurgitated it and they didn't have the internet. They didn't have back then what we have available. We're living in the information age. And we don't have any excuse anymore to be ignorant. The, the Greek word is idiotes. 
It's, it's actually where we get the word idiot, unlearned, and ignorant from. And I mean, all of us are an idiotes about something right now. I stand before you a complete idiot about a whole bunch of stuff that I just don't know about. That's why I choose. I have people, uh, matter of fact, for the book, I've had a bunch of people want to interview me for like podcasts and different stuff. And I had, I had one guy out of New York. Uh, he said, I've heard some good things about your book. Can we do this interview? I said, yeah. And he said, at the end of the interview, I want us to also talk about this. And I said, I'd rather not. He said, why? I said, because I've really not studied it. He said, well, the Bible is clear. I said, I've have learned now after all these years, the Bible isn't near as clear about stuff as you think it is. I said, have you studied the Greek in it, the Hebrew in it, the Aramaic in it? Have you studied the historical context in it? Because it might be clear to your 21st century brain, but it might not actually be clear to who it was originally written to because we're living in a total different era right now. And so what happens sometimes is things we think are completely clear in the Bible are not near as clear as you think you are. That's why anytime someone argues with me, well, the Bible's clear on that. I'm like, okay, you think so. All right, because I'm just telling you uh, that there's more than 300 figures of speech in the Bible. I've, I said this, I think, uh, the series we did last year with you, but the Bible's not a children's book. All right, it's not a children's book. I, I have people want to argue with me all the time, like the Bible is so simple, a fifth grader can understand it. And I always tell them, I agree, if you're a Jewish fifth grader living in the first century. All right. If you understood the idioms and hyperbole and the language of who it was written to. And that's why I really want to start by saying this. Myth does not necessarily mean something that is, is an untruth. A lot of times myths are sharing truths that are behind truths. You know, something that's considered myth does not always mean just something that's a complete lie. Sometimes it's sharing a truth, but in a different way. I, I called it myths because there's just a lot of things that we believe that was passed down. I, I, I people tell me this all the time. They're like, well, you know what? My pastor taught that to me and he was one of the most godly and kind and loving person and fruit bearing that I've ever met. I said, I have no doubt. I have no doubt that he or she was an amazing person of character and they were loving and kind and fruit bearing and sincerely wrong about a whole bunch of stuff. And how I many know we all have been at one time or another? There's, there's a lot of stuff. I'm standing in front of you right now, sincerely probably wrong about some stuff right now. And, and that's where when we are constantly going and growing from grace to grace and from faith to faith and from glory to glory, then we're constantly learning and we don't stay stuck. You know, I, I love uh, one of the phrases and the mantra of the Great Reformation was reformed and always reforming. In other words, that we're going to constantly be learning. We're not going to stay stuck. I, I put a thing out on Facebook at least a couple times a year because people always ask me, so exactly what are you? You know, when it comes to your belief system. And I'm like, I'm a little bit of Catholic because I believe this. I'm a little bit of Lutheran because I believe this. I'm a little bit of Baptist because I believe this. I'm a little bit of Methodist. I'm a little bit of Word of Faith. I'm a little bit of Pentecostal. I'm a little bit of Apostolic. I, I mean, it, it, I put a whole thing in there because they believe this, this. I'm, I'm a mishmash. I'm a mutt. Okay, but, but the difference is I embrace all of the movements through history of what they shared that was solid truth, but I don't stay stuck. I don't ever want to just stay stuck in a movement or, or, or a place where God was. I, I want to live in what I call proceeding word. Life comes. Jesus said man shall live by the proceeding word. Notice man doesn't produce life by preceding word. And a lot of times we're stuck in preceding word and we don't understand the proceeding word because the proceeding word is present truth. What is God saying? He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying, not just what the Spirit said. 
And a lot of times folks are so stuck in what God said that they can't hear what he's saying because what he's saying sometimes goes against what he said. Let me give you a simple example. God was saying to Abraham, take your son up on a mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. So he's on the way to fulfill the preceding word of God, but now it's three days has passed. Now what God was saying is what he had said. And so God speaks to him while he's got a knife in the air and says, now don't do it. That's the polar opposite of what God told him three days before. I mean, God, are you confused? You know, I mean, what's (laughs) what's going on here? And, And the difference is, and I've said this for years, I said, a lot of us would have killed our Isaac and said, God told me. I'm doing what God said. God told me to do this. But Abraham being our father of faith is he kept listening on his journey. In other words, don't kill your Isaac because God said it, and on the way to do it, God tells you something different. Don't freak out on that. It's okay. Amen. Good teaching, brother. Hallelujah. Huh? And see, sometimes we, we get stuck in the preceding word, and we stop listening to the proceeding word because it sounds different. It, it may even be, uh, it may even go against a lot of times how I was raised. And it doesn't mean that the people that taught me were bad people or horrible or wrong. They did the best they, the best they could do with what they knew. I mean, I, I, look, I look back, I was in Bible school in the 80s, and stuff I can learn now by pushing a button on my phone. I would have had to fly to Turkey to Constantinople, to ancient libraries, hire interpreters to teach me some of the stuff that I can find now by pushing a button on my phone. Listen, we're living in an amazing era. This is the information age. And, and who, who, is going to, who is going to move forward in this day and hour are those who are open to information. Hmm? And, and how many know we got the best information? Because in the beginning was the information. The information was with God and the information was God. Listen, we, we, we've got the best information. Jesus is the best information. All right? and, and he knows how to make all those things clear. But now, let, me, let me say this. And some of you heard me say this before, but I think it's so important. There is only one interpretation of Scripture. And the interpretation, in other words, what it means is what it meant to who it was originally spoken to. Not what it means to us today. That's called the application. There's many applications. I mean, you know, every generation there's fresh applications. Why? Because the scriptures are living. They're alive to us, okay? But, but there's only one interpretation. The problem is the reason there's 40,000 denominations is because each denomination teaches their application as the interpretation. But there's only one interpretation. What did it mean? If I wrote you a letter in 2019, I almost said 18. I forgot. I got to get right. I got to get used to that now. It hit me. We're in 2019 now. I've got, I just got used to writing 18 on everything. It happens every year. But, but if I write you a letter in 2019 and I use language of 2019, hyperbole of 2019, I use metaphor of 2019 and someone a hundred years from now reads a letter that I wrote to you and they're like, Ooh, this is Jamie speaking right to me because this is what he meant by that. Now, it might still speak directly to you because of where you are, which is an application, but you can't say what I meant if you didn't 
know me and you didn't understand where I come from, my culture, my historicity. Come on, you with me? And that's the part of where we have messed up so many times when it comes to Scripture is people just say, well, you just interpret that differently. Well, there's only one interpretation. How do you interpret it differently when there's only one interpretation? What did it mean to the original audience and how did they understand it? Now, how we apply it can be a bunch of different ways. And that's the beauty of it. And, and being raised in the, in the Pentecostal Charismatic Church, we mainly preached applications. But then we taught the application was the interpretation. And so if someone would say something different than what we were taught, we would freak out because we thought our interpretation is correct when there's actually, and listen, this is just simple hermeneutics. I mean, this, isn't, this is something that you're supposed to learn like your first year in Bible school. All right, you know, the sad part about it is most Bible schools indoctrinate you rather than actually teach you how to correctly interpret Scripture. And so the, the whole purpose in me even writing this book is to just stimulate thought so that people, uh, listen, it's not unhealthy to question what you believe. If you never question what you believe, you never get settled in it. See, see the way I was raised, I, I was raised where preachers actually told us, don't go listen to that person. You'll get deceived. So you believe the Holy Spirit in me isn't really that powerful. The greater than he that is in me actually doesn't apply here. Well, if, if you, oh, brother, you got to be, I have one guy actually tell me here this last year, I only read the Bible, and if I buy a book, it's only when the Holy Spirit tells me to buy it, and I only read certain sections of it he tells me to read because that's the only thing I need at the time because I don't want to get all confused with all of this stuff. I'm like, so Holy Spirit's not the author of confusion. I mean, listen, if what you believe cannot be challenged, you don't believe very strongly. I, I, I've always been the type of person that if someone says, don't go listen to that person, they're a heretic, that makes me want to go listen to them. Because <laughs> if they've irritated you in religion that much, now they've got my interest. I mean, if everybody says you got to go hear the guy, everybody loves him, I won't go across the street probably to hear him because he probably ain't saying that much. If everybody loves him, because anyway, how do you... <laughs> Didn't, didn't Jesus actually say that, that? That if everyone loves you, you're probably not a prophet anyway? Uh, pro- probably don't have that much to say. If just everybody agrees with you, if everybody follows the mob, if everybody follows the crowd, uh, Jesus wasn't a mob follower and he wasn't the one. He was the one actually speaking the polar opposite of the crowd uh, and the mob. He, he, he gave proper understanding. And so if we don't understand how to properly interpret. What did it first mean? That's why you ask the simple questions. Who was this written to? What era did they live in? Uh, you know, th- th- that's why I know, you know, in September I did the whole thing on the last days. I'm like, listen, you can't turn to the book of Thessalonians where Paul is warning the church at Thessalonica to watch out for a great apostasy, a great falling away of the church and, 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 and say that that is talking about people 2000 years in the future. Because that would, that, would be like, that would be like me writing you a letter and saying, now listen, man, you guys better watch out for something. It's literally, careful, because it's, it's right here. You got to watch out and you got to pray against it. Psych, it's actually not for you. It's for people 2,000 years in the future. Come on, just think about that just for a minute, okay? I mean, Paul, Paul had no idea about anything when it comes to He was writing to a specific people at a specific time about a specific events that would happen in their lifetime. Now, that doesn't mean it's not applicable to us. How many of you know there's still times where people are, are, are apostatizing? They're, they're walking away from the faith. Uh, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not sure you really walk away from Christ. I think you walk away from the faith. 
That's why why it it doesn't say examine yourself to see if you be in Christ. It says examine yourself to see if you be in faith. (laughs) There's a huge difference right there because you get in Christ, you can't get out of Christ. In him you live and move and have your being. You, You can't get away from him no matter how hard you try. Matter of fact, we're going we're, we're to talk about it in one of the myths. Man, you know, I mean, I've been told my whole life, hell is a place that is void of God's presence. Well, David kind of seemed to think it wasn't because David said, where can I go from your presence? If I make my bed in hell, you're even there. Anyway, <laughs> kind of puts a little bit of monkey wrench in that right there. Anyway, I'm, I, I got to wait because I'm going to go. So let me, let me get started with this. We're going to have fun. Trust me, we're going to have fun. And so I, I want you to be thinking uh, and, uh, but we're going to start with myth number one, which I don't, I don't know how long we'll stay here, <laughs> uh, just because this is normally, anyway, on Facebook, this one got a whole lot of, uh, yeah. myth number one is Lucifer is the devil. Now, let me just read this. The word, notice I didn't say name, Lucifer, is found only one time in the old English translations of the Bible, King James and New King James in Isaiah 14, 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. It is, it is not found anywhere in the newer translations, NASB, NIV, NLT, ESV, that use the actual Hebrew rather than the Latin. The translation of Lucifer in Isaiah 14, 12 is morning star or shining one, as it is a description of the Hebrew morning star, which most scholars teach was referring to an actual star called Venus. It is translated in the KJV as Lucifer because the translators use the Latin Vulgate for some of the Old Testament rather than the actual Hebrew, which is used by the newer translations. Lucifer is a Latin word describing the morning star. In its historical context, many believe it was referring to King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, after his defeat by the Persians, and was a parable dealing with the king's haughtiness towards God, see Daniel, or King Belshazzar, who was the last king of ancient Babylon described in Scripture. Much of Christianity began to teach that devil, the devil and Lucifer wore one and the same because of fictional books such as Dante's Inferno, Milton's Paradise Lost, because they both refer to the devil as Lucifer. To try and make this mean the devil and his fall from heaven as a former angel is eisegesis, which means to read into Scripture what you want it to mean at best. Jesus in the New Testament said, I saw Satan, not Lucifer, fall from heaven like lightning, and that the devil was a liar from the beginning. Notice, not an angel who became the devil. The book of Enoch says that the angel which caused the rebellion in heaven was Azazel. So maybe that's why it's not included in the canon of Scripture. It was considered myth, just calling Lucifer the devil. Now, is there a real entity called the devil? No doubt, perhaps. I believe so, even though many debate that. Could Isaiah 14 be a metaphor describing demonic and pagan deities and mindsets? Perhaps, but Lucifer is not his name. Now, let me add a little commentary. That is just to get people to think and study for themselves, okay? Uh, Lucifer is found one time in the scriptures, in Isaiah 14, and only in translations that use the Latin, not the Hebrew. Otherwise, it's day star, morning star, shining one. And it is not the name of a person. It's actually a description of a star. We have built whole theologies on Lucifer. But I'm going to believe Jesus over everybody else. Jesus didn't say, I saw Lucifer fall from heaven. He said, I saw Satan. And 
Do you know that there is no scripture in the Bible that shows us even, even close to the origin of the devil? The truth is we don't know. Uh, you, you, can, you can turn to Isaiah 14 and you can go over to the book of Ezekiel and people take those verses so far out of context say he was the worship leader in heaven. How many of you ever heard? He was the worship leader in heaven and all this other stuff. And it's like, man, how in the world did you get that out of that when historically it wasn't speaking about that at all? And let me mess with you. If you want Isaiah 14 to be a metaphor of an individual, Adam would make a whole lot more sense because it actually said Eden was his throne. He took the praises of creation to God. He said in his heart, I will ascend and be like God. That kind of sounds more like Adam. Not only that, but we don't have any scripture that says angels have free wills. They were made as servants. So that would mean that an angel could believe he could be like God. When angels long to look into the mystery of what we understand. Come on, I mean, I mean, see, when you get taught certain stuff, we, we, we don't think it all the way through. And, and, and again, I'm not saying Isaiah 14 is talking about Adam. The truth is it's talking about Nebuchadnezzar in its historical context. But to call the devil Lucifer, when actually the word devil doesn't even show up until almost halfway through the Old Testament, they had a whole different concept of who the devil even was. Now, now does, that, does that mean that there's not an accuser of our soul? Sure there is. But the good news is he was defeated. Man, he's, he's, he's a defeated foe. I think a lot of times we spend time in churches. Man, I've been to whole spiritual warfare conferences where, where, where we, spent, we spent 10 hours one weekend re-empowering disempowered spirits. I mean, we, re, we re-energized him, praying against him, and actually giving them place when he said, give no place to the devil, to the accuser, to that which was uh, against you. But see, we, we get all of these ideas, and it goes through Hollywood, mythology. We get all of these ideas. I mean, I mean, you know, hey, Fox put out a show, Lucifer, not too long ago. I mean, the world has even bought into the whole Dante's Inferno type of understanding of who the devil is because we still think... Uh, and it's one, of, it's one of my other myths. We think that the devil and demons actually rule hell, and we don't have one verse of Scripture that ever says they've ever been there. Matter of fact, depending on your eschatology, according to Matthew 25, the devil and his messengers are cast into hell someday in the future. He walk, goeth about on the earth like a roaring lion, that he's the prince of the power of the air. He's never been in hell. That, 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 that's why we have, have folks with Jesus. Jesus said, well, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And I think we literally think that there's these gates that are constantly moving towards us. Gates don't move. Gates are stationary. They're to keep people in and to keep people out. All right. And, and it's talking about authority. And, the, and, and it's actually hell is a mistranslation. It's the gate of Hades, which is the grave. All, Jesus wasn't saying all hell. I mean, come on, come on. We've been in church long enough. Someone said, man, this last week, all hell came against me. What they were saying is I felt all this demonic influence coming against me or no devil in hell is going to stop me. Well, the truth is there ain't no devil in hell. They ain't never been in hell. Come on, you understand? But, but, but we, we hear these cliches and we say this stuff and we know what it means. What we're saying is, you know, demonic influence and there's, there's attacks of the enemy of our soul. But when we're constantly putting his headquarters in hell, 
We're constantly giving him a place that God actually never gave him. And we get these ideas of hell and we start thinking about pitchforks and red devils with horns. And, and, and we get this idea of all of these scary creatures and fire. But yet, yet at the end of the book of Revelation, it says death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is not hell. Death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. And so, again, most of what we believe about all this comes more from Hollywood and comes more from poems written in medieval times. And we've, it's been passed down as myth from generation to generation, and it's actually not in Scripture. So, anyway, hallelujah. So, uh, now we'll, we'll open up for a couple questions. Maybe we got questions about that. <laughs> Y'all are like, I don't even know if I want to mess with that one. You got to come, come to the hot seat. It's, it's, it's all, it's, it's, it's all good. I mean, let me ask you this. Did, did it at least make sense? Yeah. All right. I, I mean, when you, when, you, when you begin to comprehend some of this, uh, it, it's why the second myth, and I'm, I'm not going to go into the, the second one, but it also, the second myth, uh, when it comes to giving full explanation, uh, it says that also when Lucifer fell from heaven, he took a third of the angels with him. Now, we've all heard that. And, and you just ain't going to find it in Scripture. It's, it's nowhere in there. And they get it from the book of Revelation that said when the dragon's tail whipped around and said it knocked a third of the stars from the heavens and somehow stars turned into angels. When, when the beginning of the book of Revelation, he calls the, the angels of the church or the pastors of the churches stars. And, and in the Old Testament, the first time God talks about stars, he's talking about Israel because he said, I'm going to bless you as the stars of the heaven and the sands of the seashore, Abraham. And, and, and literally, in 70 AD, a third of all of the stars, a third of all of Israel was slaughtered. 1.3 million Jews were slaughtered by the Romans and thrown into the lake of fire. Well, they were thrown into Ghana, which was the Valley of Hinnom, and they were set on fire by the Romans. Historically, that's something that actually already happened. So the dragon's tail whipped around and did destroy a third of all of Israel. But now, trying to get that to mean a third of the angels fell from heaven... Anyway, I mean, I mean, listen, it's because if we were just reading it, we would never come up with that. But because we were taught it, then we read into the scripture what we were taught. We were indoctrinated to believe certain things. And, I, I you know, for me, uh, that came alive when my mom called me one day. I was in my 20s, and she said, I can't find in the Bible anywhere. She was getting ready to teach the youth or something. This thing about a third of the angels fall from heaven, where is that? And I said, I don't know. I never thought about it. So I started looking for it, and I was like, are you kidding me? This is where we get that from? That's like, I don't know how anybody could think it means that. So anyway, any, 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 any questions about any of that? I, I knew you were going to have one. a couple. I'll be the first one. Good. It says in Scripture that uh, we war against principalities and powers mm-hmm. and the, the force. Yeah. What are they? Yeah. Uh, that's one of my myths I'll get to, if that's all right. <laughs> no, no, no. Listen, it, it, it's actually, it's, actually a, it, it's a great question, but it, it's one that's best when I get to it. And, yeah, and, and I read it just because, you know, I sat in a whole Saturday seminars in the 90s uh, where, I mean, we're talking like six-hour, seven-hour seminars or principalities were general demons and, and powers were captain demons and sergeant demons and all of this stuff. But, but, but then the same Greek words for principalities and powers is also used in the book of Corinthians when Paul said that the rulers of this age, not our age, their age, they were still in the age of law, 
right? The rulers of that age, all right, uh, they, they, uh, if they would have known who he was, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Well, that couldn't be talking about demons because demons knew who he was. Jesus, we know Paul, we know who are you. Have you come to torment us? Before our time, demons knew who he was. So if the principalities and powers that crucify the Lord didn't know who he was, principalities and powers aren't talking about demons. Anyway, we're, we're, we're going to get there, I promise. So see, again, <laughs> there's not, that doesn't mean that the principalities and powers cannot be influenced by the demonic. See, that's the application still of today. But we're reading, saints, listen, we're reading an ancient document that was written. Now, now, this is going to shock some of you. That wasn't written by God. God didn't write any of the Bible. He inspired men to write. But for us to believe that some of those men did not put some of their influence in it. We know Paul did. Paul's like, listen, I'm saying this by permission. All right. In other words, Paul's like, you know, listen, hey, this isn't necessarily inspired. I just feel like I need to add this in there. Okay. I mean, that's right in the scriptures themselves. And Paul was like, I'm giving my opinion here, okay? He's writing a letter to a church. He has no idea they're going to call it scripture 300 years in the future. I mean, it would probably have horrified him. It, it probably really would have. I mean, especially as a good Jewish boy, it would have been like, wait a minute. You know, I think I might have been, anyway, <laughs> I might have been a little more careful in some of the stuff I said or, or brought a little more explanation to it. But that, listen, that doesn't mean that the Bible's not important. It doesn't mean that the scriptures, that God did not inspire men to write them down, but, but there is a purpose for it. The law and the prophets speak of him. That, 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 that is why I'm going to get to it in a few minutes, but, uh, you know, faith comes by hearing, and hearing, uh, we've been taught, hearing comes from the Bible because it's mistranslated word of God. So we just think the whole Bible is the word of God, but yet when Jesus, the word of God, showed up, he rebuked some of the Bible. Uh, the whole Sermon on the Mount is a rebuke of Moses. You've heard said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. In other words, Moses said this. But Daddy and I, we didn't say that. Moses did. I say to you. He, he doesn't just reinterpret it. He gives the polar opposite view. Moses said, if they hit you, knock them out. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If someone punches you, just hit them right back. Jesus shows up and says, but I say, love your enemies. Bless those that despite that, that That's not just a reinterpretation. That's like saying, listen, man, that is the polar opposite of this. All right? That, 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 that is why uh, it's actually translated faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christos. It's the word of Christ that produces faith. Not everything in the Bible produces faith in you. How do I know that? Colossians tells us the law shuts up faith. So that means the whole first five books of the Bible don't produce faith in you. The law actually shuts faith down in you. All right, it doesn't produce faith. I was taught my whole life. All right, you just read that Bible. Everything in that Bible is going to produce faith in you. No, it ain't. Faith is trust, confidence, belief. Listen, if I got up here tonight and I turned to the book of Leviticus and I said, some of you ladies, you showed up at the service tonight and you're on your monthly cycle, we're supposed to take you outside and stone you. Not going to produce a whole lot of faith in you. <laughs> you're, not, you're not going to be overflowing with trust. <laughs> like, whoa, man, that's exciting. No, but that's in the scriptures. See, that's why faith is produced by the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus 
that produces faith in us, trust, confidence, and belief. There's a whole bunch of the Old Testament that ain't going to produce an ounce of faith. But, but, but now let me say this. Because the scriptures are alive and words and his word is spirit and they are life, it doesn't mean God can't take a passage out there to minister directly to your spirit and breathe on it out of context. That's why I encourage people all the time, listen, when you read your Bible, you don't have to be a scholar for the Holy Spirit to minister to you about the scriptures. Because God will take something completely out of context to minister to your spirit. The problem is when you go try to preach that as doctrine. You know, I, I always give the simple example. Years ago, I heard uh, a, a man had preached a sermon that he had, uh, he had come down with a heart disease. And they gave him like six to nine months to live. And so he had everybody he knew pray for him. He was believing God for his healing. And like five months later, he still went. I mean, he went to a Benny Hinn meeting, and he didn't even agree with Benny Hinn. I think Benny blew on him and threw his coat on him. And, you know, this was like, this was like back in the 80s. You know, I mean, he just he didn't even agree with that. But when you're sick, you're desperate enough. You're like, hey, man, if you spit in my mouth, you know, put mud in my eye, I don't care what you do. All right, if I'm going to get well, hey, I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. All right, you get, you get desperate enough, you know, it, whatever. And so he was reading in Psalms one day. He's reading the passage. And David in the Psalm says, oh, God, my heart is fixed. And he stopped and he read it again. And the Holy Spirit spoke to his spirit and he said, your heart is fixed. Now, that has nothing to do with your actual heart. When David said, my heart is fixed, what he's saying is, my focus is fixed on you. It doesn't have anything to do with your literal heart. But the Holy Spirit took it out of context to minister to his spirit. The problem is, is if you go try to teach that as doctrine, and then you tell people this is what this means, because it's not what it means. The Holy Spirit spoke it to you for you. It doesn't mean you're supposed to go teach everyone else that's what that means. And, and you see, me growing up in the Pentecostal Charismatic Church, that's how we preached all of our sermons. All of our sermons were, we'd pray that week, and we'd read our Bible, and kind of whatever, well, I feel God's saying this. So we preach the application as the interpretation. Hallelujah. So that, that one. All right, now let me, let me get to the next one. Uh, well, I kind of already mentioned it. It's myth number four, the devil, or I'm sorry, just wait. Uh, myth number three, God cannot look on sin. How many have ever heard God can't look on sin? Man, that one was drilled into me my whole life. God's so holy. He's so righteous. He can't even look on sin. Matter of fact, when Adam and Eve sinned, God had to turn his face. Jesus on the cross became sin. He, He was so full of our sin that God had to turn his face from him because he who knew no sin became sin. So when we become the righteousness of God in Christ, which, by the way, is a mistranslation. Uh, he actually did not become sin. It actually is translated sin offering. He who knew no sin became a sin offering. Because he didn't literally become sin. He became a sin offering to remove all sin. Man, that, that, that changes the whole way you view that thing now because that Greek word somehow just, just, no, no, he just became sin and God who cannot look on sin had to turn from him. So if, 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 if you're interested at all, if you go on YouTube and put in my name, go look for a message called, Did God Forsake Jesus? 
All right, and just watch it on YouTube because I don't have time to teach it to you. Uh, but but I, I walk you all the way through that Jesus on the cross was actually quoting, uh, he was actually uh, quoting Psalm 22. And my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was actually singing a song on the cross. He actually wasn't saying the Father forsook him because according to Paul, God was in Christ reconciling the world. Father and the Son were never separate. Uh, how many of you saw the shack? Did you see the shack? Did you notice when, when Papa uh, held out her wrist? And there were holes in father's wrist also. Man, I, I was sitting in the movie theater with Nate Blouse. Nate and I watched it together. I was sitting in the movie theater. I was like, hey! I started shouting at the screen. Somebody's finally got their atonement theory right. I said, that, that was actually one of the most profound things actually in that movie. Because the father and the son, to believe the father and the son have ever been disjoined is actually more blasphemous. Because you know what Jesus' last prayer, his main prayer to the, the actual Lord's Prayer is John 17. And the Lord's Prayer, he says, Father, may they be one, even as we are one, I in you and you in me and we in them. He wasn't praying that we'd all learn how to think the same way. What he was saying is, my prayer for all of those that you gave me is that they understand the same union that we have. That they understand that there's no divide. They don't go in and out of my presence. It's just as spiritual for them to go to a prayer meeting as it is to go to a movie with their family. Why? Because they don't go in and out of me. I'm constantly with them all the time, 24-7. We, we are in continual union, and it produces life in us. But actually, you get to the end of Psalm 22, and you, you, know, you get to about verse 14. And I think about verse 14, it says that I'm surrounded by dogs. It literally, or Psalm 22 is literally describing the crucifixion. He said, my hands and my feet have been pierced. They're, they're actually gambling over my garment. So, so if you're a Jew and you heard Jesus start in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every Jew standing there started to sing the rest of the psalm. Because if I stood up here, if I stood up here today and I started saying, the Lord is my shepherd, every one of you would start thinking, I shall not want. So he starts singing Psalm 22, and by the time they get to about verse 14 through 18, every Jew was standing there going, OMG. <laughs> this is happening right in front of us. We are killing God. And then you get to verse 24, and it says, he, shall, he, he has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted one, and he has not turned his face from him. God never turned his face from Jesus. So anyway, you have to go listen to it. It's an entirety. Again, YouTube, did God forsake Jesus? It's a fun one to listen to. But, but the, now let me read this. Many of us have heard him and taught God cannot look on sin because of his holiness and righteousness. The scriptures tell us God hates sin. And this is true, not because it's kryptonite and weakens him, but because of its effect on us. God knows that sin leads to death, and he is light, life, and love. His heart is abundance of life for us. Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So if that statement is true, why can't he look on evil if he's not counting it against people? When we study the scriptures, what we find is only one passage that even comes close to saying this is Habakkuk 1.13. God, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. So why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? In other words, your holiness does not approve of evil, or how can you look on it? So why do you? The King James says, so why do you tolerate them? The idea that God cannot look on sin or evil is silly because if true, then he's blind because it's everywhere. 
Also, if we believe that Jesus and the Father are one and the incarnation, God becoming flesh, is true, then God looked on sin, touched sin, ate with sinners, got a pedicure and rubbed down with essential oils from one. Uh, Jesus was called a friend of sinners, so he was obviously looking on sin and it did not weaken him. But instead, he being grace abounded even more with love because where sin abounds, grace even more abounds. Now watch this. Even in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned. God did not run from Adam and Eve. He came down in the garden to still walk with them even though they messed up. They hid from him. He never hid from them. Sin does not separate God from us. Sin can separate us from God. Because we're separated, alienated, Paul says in Colossians, an enemy of God in our minds. That's why Jesus showed up and John showed up preaching, repent, metanoi, change your mind. Because God's never been against you. He's always been for you. He's not holding your sin against you. That's like really good news. That means, that's why it shocks me. I, I said, God's not holding sin against people, but church folk do a good job. We still think every time there's a hurricane that God is judging sin. But wait a minute, how can God be judging sin when he's not even holding it against anybody? And how come hurricanes only hit the Bible Belt? <laughs> I've asked that for years. I mean, how come they ain't hitting California, for heaven's sakes? I mean, you know, I mean, San Francisco. I mean, how come they ain't hitting other places? I mean, for some reason, they only seem to hit the Bible Belt. And so if it's God angry at sin, it's him ticked at religion. But anyway... Teasing, of course. <laughs> the, the truth is God's not holding men's sins against them. God can look on sin. Cain killed his brother. God doesn't run from Cain. He comes to Cain, gets close enough to his sin to touch his forehead to protect him from being killed by others. Gave him grace, even though he was the first murderer. It was never God running from us. God has always, his heart has always been to go towards us. God, listen, Sin is not kryptonite. God doesn't get around sin. Oh, oh, I've got to get away from this because my holiness can't stand it. No, he detests sin because he knows what it does to his kids. It brings destruction, death. It opens the door to the enemy to reap all kinds of havoc in your life. It affects your destiny. It affects you living the abundant life here and now. It absolutely affects your life. And so if we get this idea that God can't even look on it, I mean, it's, it's, it's just ludicrous. Uh, I mean, obviously, God can look on sin. So, anyway, anybody got any questions for that right there? We're going to have to see if we can get through 10 of these. I don't know. You got to like, no, I think you did a pretty good explanation on that one right there. All right, let, me, let me get to the next one here. Ah, this is a good one. I mentioned it a little bit. The devil lives in and rules hell. Uh, you know what? I, I, I probably don't fully need to go into it because I already... Uh, I already kind of mentioned this. Um, the devil's never been to hell. Uh, he had the keys of death and the grave. There's a difference. He, he had the keys, which is authority. But it doesn't say he's ever been there. And that, that's, it's a misnomer. It's, we've, we, have, we have read into it what we thought in our own heads, but nowhere does it actually say uh, that he actually lived there, or it's his headquarters, or he rules there, or that's where demons are. The truth is, we don't know. 
And, and you know what? I don't know about you, but I'm, the older I get, I'm okay with that. I'm actually okay with some mystery because guess what? Uh, if we know everything, then we're God. Um, you know, when I was younger, I didn't think there was any such thing as mystery. Bless God, that's why we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. And, and there's an answer for everything. You know, just live a little longer. You know, you live long enough. You get, then when you begin to realize everything that you thought you knew, you find out later in life that there was a whole lot of stuff you believed that was myth. And then you just shake your head and say, I'm not even sure what to believe anymore. That's why I've told people for years that I always thought the older I got, the more answers I would have. I'm finding the older I get, the more questions I have. And I'm a whole lot more gracious with people that have questions. And I've learned to be gracious with people that think they have all the answers. Because the truth is, none of us do. None of us have this all figured out. Uh, all of us are still growing. Uh, we're still maturing. Uh, we're still increasing. Now, uh, the next myth is called God is in control. Now, now this one, I'm, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to talk about it because you can get the book to read it. Uh, this is just a go-to statement for most Christians when they don't know how to explain something. You know, and, and, and the truth is, we just say it at the worst times, too. I mean, we do. You know, we get a phone call, and, and, and someone says, well, you know, my, my child just died in a car accident. Well, you know, I'm so sorry, but, you know, God's in control. You know, my, my, my wife just, my, my wife just uh, filed for divorce. Well, brother, I'm so sorry, but, you know, hey, God's in control. And we're pretty much telling people that, like, God did that. Like, he's okay with cancer and sickness and death and car accidents. and I mean, he, he's just, he, no, no, he, he, he's in control. And, and what we're not thinking is if God is in control of everything that goes on on this planet, I don't really want much to do with him. Because that means he's okay with sex slaves. That, 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 mean, that means he, he's okay with, with Down syndrome, and he's okay with cancer, and he's, he's okay with all kinds of chaos. He's okay with a little girl that's being continually molested and raped by her father or her brother right now uh, all over the world, thousands of them. It's like, wait, wait a minute. God doesn't have anything to do with any of that. God is sovereign. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and everything that is in it, but he's not in control of everything that's going on on this planet. I'd like to explain it like this. I own a 200 by 200 lot. That's my house. I'm the king. That's my house. But I can't control everything the squirrels do in my yard. I can't control the dang skunks that love to get under my deck and, 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 and just wreak havoc, no matter what I put under there. It, I mean, I, I can't control everything that happens on my property, even though it's mine. Hmm? Matter of fact, when you go to the Psalms, David, uh, David put it like this. He said, the heavens are the Lord's, but earth has he given to man. In other words, the mess that goes on in our planet is not God's fault. I've heard people say, well, if God was God, why don't he just put a stop to all this? It's because he gave man authority over the earth. I mean, think about this. He speaks to Adam, creates Adam, and he, and he says this to him. He said, uh, God created man and his image after his likeness. And he, and he says this, let us make man, but let them have dominion. He didn't say let us make man and let us have dominion. He said let us make man, but let them have dominion. I, I remember as, as a little boy sitting with my parents in family devotions one morning. 
and we were going through Genesis, and I, I stopped my dad, and I said, Dad, how come God just didn't start over? I mean, he's God, right? I mean, when Adam screwed up, Adam and Eve, how come God just didn't start over? I mean, if, if he's this all-powerful God, why didn't he just start over? And it took me years to, first of all, realize that he did. <laughs> he started over at the cross. When he started a new creation with a new Adam, hallelujah, listen, he, he, he did actually start over. It, it, it took a minute, but he actually did start over. But if God would have took back the authority of the earth, then you couldn't trust him today that he'd stand on his word. When he gave man dominion over the earth, he took his hand off it. He said, listen, it's all mine. I own it. But I made you the landlords. I, I gave you, it, it's, why, it's why Hebrews chapter 1 it tells us, and it's it's interesting passage, Hebrews 1 and 2, and it's talking about the law and about how the law was given through angels. But now in this new covenant, God has placed it in the hands of men. In other words, if God is going to bring transformation to the earth, he's not going to do it from the sky. He's put it in the hands of men. That, that, that's why you go to Romans chapter 10, and Romans chapter 10, uh, it starts telling us this. It says, uh, the righteousness that is of faith does not say, I will ascend to heaven and bring God down here. So when you get in them worship services, everybody is going, oh, God, rend the heavens and come down. Paul actually said that's not faith. You ever been in them services before? I mean, the whole prayer time, the whole worship time, oh, God, we're waiting for everything to drop out of the sky. Paul said the righteousness that is of faith does not say, I will ascend to heaven and bring God down here or descend into the depth and bring him up. But the word is not you even in your mouth. In other words, he's as close as the mention of your name. You have the authority to bring the change. What you say brings deliverance on the earth. That's not just positive and negative confession. It is life and death that's manifested through the sons of God. Come on, you hear me? And so God's like, listen, man, I've given the authority on the earth to men. And if God took that back, then you wouldn't have been able to trust him today. Because if he'd have said, you know what? I'm giving you authority, but... I'm taking it back. We're going to start all over again. Then you wouldn't be able to trust him that he'd do for you what he said about your family. Huh? Why? Because he would have went against his own word, and his word is above his name, above his character, above his nature. That, that, that's, the whole, that's the whole heart of Heavenly Father. And so the idea that God is in control, now I know we normally say it because what we're saying is, you know what, when it comes to my life, as a son of God that's submitted to God. I mean, everything that goes on in my life, God is going to, he's going to work all this together for my good no matter what. That's really normally what we mean, but most people don't hear that. Especially your unbelieving family and friends. You know what they hear? They're like, well, man, your God's a, he's a jerk, man. Because he's, he's letting all this stuff go on. Don't you know what happened, uh, happened to my daughter? She died at five of leukemia, and your God's in control. I don't want nothing to do with him. But you see, we, we, we say stuff, and a lot of times we're not thinking about what we're saying. The truth is, God is sovereign. He's king. He's Lord. He's Abba. But he doesn't control everything that happens on the planet. I heard someone say this years ago. If God is really in control of everything that goes on the planet, then... He would not be allowed entrance into nearly any country in the world. Because if we got up and said that he's in control of genocide and the sex slave trade 
and he's in control of sickness. He's in control. Nobody would let him in their country. A king that's okay with all of that, nobody would let him in. And yet God gets blamed for all kinds of stuff that he said, I place this in your hands. If, if, if you want to see your world change, begin to love the world, not scream at it. Huh? Begin to transform your neighborhood. Believe that you're an agent of change and that the kingdom of heaven is now flowing through you and the kingdom is bringing increase. Don't, don't sit around, but you see, and, and I'm going to go back to some eschatology that we talked about in, in September, but you see, if I was the devil... The number one thing, I would want the only entity on the planet to believe that has authority over me is no matter what they do, the world's got to get worse so Jesus can come rescue them. I've said this for years now, that, that a lot of the American fundamentalist church is the only thought process in the universe that prays for the other team to win so we can leave the field. Because <laughs> if you just believe, if your theology says the world has to get worse so Jesus can come get us out of here, then you're probably not going to have much to do with changing it. I mean, I remember a few years ago when the whole, you know, uh, gay marriage thing came out and everybody, everybody was just, Christians were throwing a fit. We can't believe this is, this is the end times. It's a sign of the times. This is the last days. The world has never been as bad as it is now. It's like, man, have you ever studied church history? It's never been as bad. What? what? Why? Because you saw a lesbian couple walking down the road holding hands. In Rome, in Jesus' day, they were practicing sodomy in the streets with little children. And nobody better than I just walked by and said, yeah, that's pretty normal. I mean, listen, man, it's better today than it's ever been. And I remember I, I put a thing on Facebook. I said, I'm curious why so many of my friends are so upset about this gay marriage issue when you believe that the world has to get worse so Jesus can come. I mean, shouldn't you be excited about this? I mean, shouldn't you be having a party? Woo! The world's getting worse. Now we can get out. The reason you're angry is because the Holy Spirit on the inside of you is saying you're here to change the world. You're here to transform it. But all of the doctrine that's been shoved down our brain has brought us confused and double-minded because what we've been taught is it has to get worse before it can come. And so then rather than actually change our neighborhoods, hallelujah, good teaching, brother, hallelujah. Uh, rather than change our neighborhoods, normally the church has sat idly by because we were taught that we were to hate the world when God loves the world. And we're, 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 not, we're to hate the things that are in this world. We're not to hate the world. For God so loved the world. And then, then we forget John three seventeen. I did not come to condemn the world, but the world through me might be saved. He's not the Savior from the world. He's the Savior of the world. Uh, that leads to my next one, all right? Myth number eight, the world is going to end. This one I'll read. Most of us have heard it one time or another. Oh, anyway, any questions about the last one? I think that one is probably self-explanatory. Or, or there's some you can even think of later, and maybe we'll start next week uh, if you had some questions after a week of mulling and looking it up for yourself because I want you to be a good Berean and don't believe it just because I tell you. Everybody say Amen. All right, don't believe it just because I'm telling you. Go study for yourself. And if you can prove me wrong, I will recant. Easily. I, I just have to go on Amazon and change that in the book. Hallelujah. <laughs> and I'm more than willing to do it, and I'll put out something public and say, listen, you know what? That was dumb. I, anyway, most of us heard at one time or another about end-of-the-world scenarios. Some of it was in movies, a sci-fi channel, or our own end-time TV preachers and pastors, as well as books and myths from major ancient religions. Those of us who are Christians 
have also heard this from the time we were young, and they probably got us run into the altar a few times to get saved again. What do the scriptures actually say about an ending to this world or this earth? Would it surprise you to find out it says absolutely nothing, not a zippo, nothing at all about it? Unless you read some translations who did a poor job of translating the Greek word aeon or age or a literal reading of 2 Peter 3, which still ends in unrighteousness being removed and the earth cleansed but not coming to an end. It mainly comes from the disciples asking Jesus in Matthew 24, 3, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the world in King James Version. The word world in most other translations uh, says age because it is the Greek word aeon, which means an epoch, a ch- an age, a cycle, or a season, and sometimes, depending on the context, eternity. It was also translated as world incorrectly in Matthew 13, 39, and 49. And the enemy who sold them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, not the end of the world. And the reapers are angels, so it will be at the end of the age, not the end of the world. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. Paul tells us in Ephesians three twenty one, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, amen, or an age without end. There was an age that was coming to an end, the age of law, but we are now living in an age without end. We've, we've entered into the age of grace, and grace don't run out after Jesus comes. All right, his mercy endures <laughs> forever. All right. We're told in Ecclesiastes 1, 4, the earth remains forever. Psalm 78, 69, and he built a sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he has founded forever. Psalm 93, 1, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Psalm 96, 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. This tells us all three times that the world is firmly forever established and it will not be moved. Also in Isaiah 45, 1, you shall not be ashamed or confounded. World without end. World in Hebrew is olam, which is the same as the Greek word aeon, which means long duration, forever or ages. So God has continually said that this earth and world are never going to come to an end, but will be transformed. The Jews called it a tikkun olam, which is a repairing and a renovation of the world. They believed that when the Messiah would come, he would renovate the earth. I mean, you know, we've been in a, a two-day renovation project. We just entered the third day of it. I mean, you know, it takes longer than two or three days to renovate something normally. Uh, and, and we've been in a, in a renovation project. Why? Because uh, of his government and peace, there will be no end. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like leaven, and a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The kingdom of God has been expanding for the last two days, the last 2,000 years. Well, and our job in each generation is to do our part to see a greater manifestation, hallelujah, of that life. So uh, the world is not going to end. It will end for some of us. We will shed this body someday, and this known world will be gone to us, but we're still going to be alive. The truth is, when you die physically, you're actually more alive now than you've ever been. All you do is go from one dimension to another, and I don't, I don't, I personally. Anyway, I might get in trouble for this. I don't, I don't believe you necessarily leave here because we're compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. 
I believe it's simply a veil. It's not up, it's not down, it's just a veil. All of a sudden, see, at times we get to tap into that realm. We get to see things that not everybody gets to see. And you die, you shed this corruptible, you step into incorruptible, you're just stepping through a veil. And now we're compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses right now. That's why there's times you felt some of your loved ones that have died are right there with you. They might be. People freak out and say, you should never talk to the dead. Well, they ain't dead. It's not necromancy. I mean, you're, you're talking to people who are more alive now than they've ever been. <laughs> Sila, yeah, you, you, you can at least you can, you can at least think about that one. And so th- this world is not going, the world is without end, okay? There, there's end to ages, but there's not an end to the world. God is going to restore the world. That, that, that is where when you get to 2 Peter 3, and you take 2 Peter 3 literally, it starts talking about the earth and its elements uh, will be burned up with fire. And I've heard people teach my whole life, yep, that means the whole earth. God said he'd never send a flood again, but he's going to fry the earth. The whole earth. The, the, the problem is with the word elements because we think the word elements means earth, wind, fire, water, but it's actually a Greek word that is talking about all of the elements in the outer court in the temple. It's the exact same word. It's not talking about the elements of this earth. It's actually talking about the destruction of the temple because that was to a first century Jew. They called that the earth. They called the outer court the earth, the inner court, uh, the inner court, or they called the outer court the sea, the inner court the land in the earth, and the holy of holies the heavens. Their heaven and their earth did pass away in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. And Peter was talking about the destruction of the temple. He's not talking about the destruction of the whole planet. All right? Because if he's talking about that, then you have to throw all these other verses in the Bible out that say the world is not going to end and the earth is established forever. All right. And so, listen, this earth is not going to be burned with fire. Their earth, the temple in Jerusalem, was burned with fire by the Romans. All right, Completely destroyed, completely knocked out. That's where, that's where if you don't understand all of that, that's where history is so important when it comes to understanding the scriptures. If you don't understand that, then it'll bring confusion. So uh, any, any questions about that? Amen. I'm having fun. Are you all having fun? Yeah, go ahead, Pastor. I don't know if it's a question so much, but what excites me about that whole idea yeah. is that maybe now as believers, we can now continue to expand the kingdom Come on. than praying to get out of here. Come on. We can see this. We can actually take care of the planet. We can care for the poor, the orphan, the widow. Come on. Who would have thunk it? But instead, we evangelize, <laughs> Who would have thunk it? get people to pray prayers to Come go on. somewhere else yeah. instead of bringing heaven here. That's just exciting to me. Who would have thunk it? Uh, who would have thunk that actually God wants heaven here? I um, mean, j- just maybe when Jesus said, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He actually meant that. Uh, re- re- rather, than trying, rather than trying to get earth to heaven, he was always trying to get heaven to earth. But, but, but you see how, how these things subtly can absolutely affect destiny? How you prepare your children? I mean, I mean, we, we have we have we have the last generation or two raised in a lot of the charismatic churches that were taught to not go to college. Because because why go to co- we're going to be out of here, man. So why go to college? Why 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 go into politics? Why have 
Hello. Yeah, why even have children? I mean, why? Well, what's the purpose of it? Because, you know, well, they ain't going to have a destiny. I remember growing up in the church and, and all of the rapture movies and everything else. I remember saying to my parents, I'm like, what in the world am I even doing here? I mean, why would God allow me to be born? I, I remember praying. I was like, God, you know, could you at least wait till I get married and have sex? <laughs> I'm going to tell the truth and shame the devil. It's like, Lord, Lord, at least I heard that's a really cool thing. I want to do that before I die. <laughs> and it's like, man, I mean, that, that, that's why for generations in a lot of the Pentecostal church and, and, and mainline fundamentalists, we had all these kids getting, getting pregnant as teenagers because they're like, man, we want to hurry up and try this before Jesus comes. And, and, and it literally robbed me of literally a future destiny for a lot of years. I literally was like, well, man, what am I even doing here? I mean, if we're just, if we're just going to be gone in the twinkling of an eye. I mean, if we're just, if we're just getting out of Dodge, then, but now there's a generation that we can now teach them to say, no, no, you're here to be the agents of change. You're here to be the sons and daughters of the king that, that actually make the world better. Do you, know, do you know it's a reason why? Do you know that even, I mean, I want you to think about this. Even a, a lot of the Puritans that came, from other countries to start this country. Now, there's a lot of mess that was with all that. But most of the universities, most of the hospitals, most of them were all started by believers who were trying to better humanity. St. Mary's, Covenant Hospital. I mean, almost everything that had to do with relieving people of pain, of disease, of, of ignorance. I mean, I mean, Harvard was started as a seminary. It was started by Jonathan Edwards. And, and most of the Ivy League schools were started as seminaries that were teaching people because they wanted them to understand knowledge and to be grounded in some things. And then for some reason, the last 150 years, everything turned into this fatalistic, what does it even matter? Why prepare our kids to be millionaires? Because in order to be able to transform nations, we're called to disciple nations. And let me tell you, when, when I went to Ecuador this past year, in, in last January, uh, with Compassion International, and I got overwhelmed with the poverty, and I remember I went back to my room the one day, and I fell on the bed just weeping. And I'm like, God, uh, listen, th this isn't just about a message of prosperity. We're going to need millions and millions of multimillionaires in the kingdom of God if we're going to disciple nations. Because before these people are going to listen to our message, they need some shoes on their feet, they need some water, they need some food in their belly. And, and if we can't do that simple stuff, and it's going to take a lot of money to do that, we don't need a bunch of people that just want more for themselves, that just want bigger cars and bigger jets. And No, that's not what we need right now. We need multimillionaires that God can trust as conduits so we can manifest the kingdom because it's going to take millions of dollars to disciple. Listen, Bill Gates went into the nation of Malawi in the last, I think, five to eight years and out of his own pocket, immunized every child in the nation so they wouldn't die of diseases that children in America never die of. Spent millions. Now imagine if he was full of the Holy Spirit. Do you, do you know what the, the nation's government would have said to Bill Gates? Carte blanche, man. What next? Bill could have said, okay, this is what I want. I, I, want, I, want, I have an education program that's built and based on the kingdom of God that's going to teach entrepreneurship, it's going to teach character, it's going to teach young men and women that they have a destiny and a purpose on the planet, and we want to put it in every one of your public schools, and by the way, we're going to help build some. You want to change a nation? Go bless their kids, because a generation later, they're going to be the ones leading it, and can literally, can literally transform a whole nation. The Great Commission is about discipling nations. 
And, and we've made it about just trying to disciple our own kids. <laughs> and sometimes we're having just a hard enough time with that. Let alone thinking about trying to disciple nations. That's the heart of the kingdom of God. It's to literally go into this world to transform it, not to sit around hiding. I think it's interesting, you know, when I was growing up, the main sermon was come out and be ye separate. And we took it out of context because come out is actually come out of Babylon. It's come out, Babylon's translated confusion. It was coming out of a religious confused system. It wasn't about coming out of the world because Jesus told us to go into the world. I just think it's interesting that most of the sermons when I was growing up was about coming out and Jesus said, go in. I mean, no wonder folks are confused. They're like, well, should we go out or should we go in? I mean, what, what exactly are we doing? And so instead, we just decided to hide in the four walls of our churches and, and, and get busy doing much to do about nothing, not affecting the world, and we just sit around and kumbaya with each other, and I'm good, you're good, I'm blessed, you're blessed, and a Barney theology, I love you, you love me, we're a happy family. And, but, but at least we're all going to heaven. Hmm? And so a lot of times, rather than gathering together for purpose, to say, listen, what answers do we have that this region needs? Listen, I'm here to tell you right now, sitting in this room is by the Holy Spirit is the answer to every problem in this region, whether it's a school problem, whether it's a single, single parent problem, if it's a poverty problem. I'm here to tell you, every, you are carrying answers and solutions. If we'll just actually take the time to ask God about it. I'm convinced the Holy Spirit said something to me in 1999. He said, I tried to give the Microsoft idea to a Christian, but no Christian would receive it because why would God give me a multi-billion dollar idea if we're getting out of here in a few years? Don't tell me your eschatology doesn't matter. I believe that in the future, the multi-billion and trillion dollar ideas, God is going to be able to put in the hands of believers that are going to have a heart to go and, and, and transform nations, to go actually really make serious change because they're not going to be thinking in those old small terms. Why would God entrust me? I mean, I still remember in the 80s and 90s in the Word of Faith, everybody was up preaching, money cometh, God wants you to be a millionaire, but they were also teaching that we're out of here any minute. So why in the world would you need millions? I mean, I remember sitting there, I sat in the whole service one time, everybody was screaming, money come, and, and yet at the same time, they were talking about how Jesus is coming any minute, and I'm like, so you become millionaires to leave it to the wicked? <laughs> I mean, I, I, remember, I remember just sitting there thinking, well, this is just stupid. I mean, why would God want us all to be millionaires and then leave? Yeah. Logic is part of the problem is... <laughs> We, we don't want to take the time to actually logically think any of this stuff through. Now, the, the next myth, and I'll, I'll wind this. Any, first of all, any questions about, about that one? Uh, fun stuff. We might, we might have one after this one. Next myth, the righteous or church will leave planet Earth. Uh, now, I know in, in September, I dealt with some of this, but some of you maybe uh, weren't there. Um, First of all, there is no, in order to establish a truth or a doctrine, normally when it comes to biblical interpretation, it's normally established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Uh, normally, if something is only found one time in the Bible, normal practice is that it does not become 
like a, a, a major doctrinal statement that you say because there's normally agreement. There's normally agreement with the prophets. There's normally a, a, there's agreement through the rest of Scripture normally interprets itself. Okay. And so uh, when it comes time to the idea of the church or the righteous leaving the planet, you will not find any verse that actually says it. The closest is Thessalonians where it says the trumpet is going to blow and blast, and, and, and we which are alive and remain to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, the dead in Christ will rise first, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Uh, but when you actually study that out in the Greek language, air is the, the realm of the spirit, and there's just all kinds of different meanings. But I tell people, I said, okay, let's say that one says we're leaving. It actually doesn't say we're leaving. It says we're going to be caught up, not caught away. Harpazo is the Greek word, and it's never caught away. It's caught up, seized, not, not caught away. Okay, going up and leaving is not the same thing. Come on, you hear me? And actually, it was based on an old Hebrew tradition that when the, in the Jewish tradition, whenever a king would come to visit Jerusalem, he'd come to Mount, uh, when he would come to Mount Zion, the people all would go from Jerusalem up to the mountain to greet the king and then return in a procession and a parade. Okay, so it was giving a picture of not leaving. And for some reason, we get this idea that when we call it to meet in the Lord, so shall we ever be with the Lord. That means we're going to heaven. But yet later in Thessalonians, it, it talks about uh, he's returning with 10,000s of his saints and heaven is coming here. So, I mean, literally that teaching says this. We're going to leave for three and a half or seven years, depending on which part of it you believe. Uh, and and then God is going to turn the earth over to the devil for like three and a half or seven years. So even though Jesus completely redeemed everything, it, it would it would be like it would be like you eradicating your house of mice, and now mice are not in your house. And then all of a sudden, one day you just decide, you know what? I'm going to leave for seven years, and I don't care what happens to the house. And all of a sudden, mice invade the house again. I mean, that's literally like saying Jesus is going to turn the planet that he reconciled back to himself. He reconciled all things. For God so loved the cosmos, not humans. In fact, I've heard my, I've heard my whole life that if you were the only person left on the planet, Jesus would have come and died for you. I'm going to tell you, if no one was on the planet, he would have come and died. Because he didn't come to just save humans. He came to reconcile. He came to save the cosmos, it was about redeeming the cosmos back to himself. Everything that got jacked up, he came to turn it all back around again. This is bigger than just humans. Come on, you hear me? That, 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 that's where this kingdom thing is so much bigger than just he came to save people uh, just so now they can go to heaven. He came, listen, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The lion doesn't want to eat the lamb. It wants to lay down with the lamb. That's why all creation is groaning for a manifestation of the sons of God. Not, not groaning for the son to come back, but groaning for the sons to grow up. Most of the churches have been praying to go up rather than grow up. But anyway, let me read a couple things to you. All right, first of all, let's just say Thessalonians means that. You need to at least then give me at least one or two more. That line up with that, and there's nothing. I've actually, I put this on Facebook at least two times a year, probably for about eight years. And I have many friends who I love and adore who are futurists, and nobody will tackle it with me. Because I actually show then a whole bunch of scriptures that actually show the righteous 
never leave the planet. So let me read just a, a few of these to you. I have at least 15 that show us the righteous will never leave. Plus, Jesus' prayer in John 17, 15, my prayer, is, Father, is that you not take them out of this world. So I want you to think about this. Jesus prayed we'd stay. Most of the church has been praying to leave. Whose prayer you think is going to get answered? All right, listen, that's a pretty simple one. And then, all right, Jesus literally prayed, do not take them out of this world. Hallelujah. Some also use the story of Noah as an example, but in the story of Noah, it was the wicked that left and the righteous that stayed. Well, Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah. Yeah, the wicked left and the righteous stayed. God did not remove the righteous from the planet. He placed them in an ark, a picture of Christ, protected them in the middle of it, and removed the righteous. Same thing with Matthew 25. He said that in, in, in that day, he'd send forth his angels to remove the tares from the wheat. Where are the wheat? Of course, that's talking more about 70 AD, but just even if not that eschatological picture, uh, if you interpret that literally, then it's God removing the wicked and not the righteous. Y'all still here? Proverbs 10, verse 30, the righteous shall never be removed and the wicked shall not inherit the earth. That one's pretty clear. Plus Psalms 2, verse 8, Psalms 37, 9, 11, 22, 29, and 34, Psalm 89, 36, as well as Proverbs 2, 21, and 22, Proverbs 10, 25, Proverbs 12, 3, and 7, and Matthew 5, 5, Jesus says that it is the sons of God, the peacemakers, that will inherit the earth. Psalm says the earth is an everlasting inheritance to the righteous. We don't have any scripture anywhere that actually says that the righteous are leaving. So the whole dispensational end-time theology is based on the righteous leaving. And there's no scripture for the right. I mean... I, I just don't get it. I've actually sat with people that are part of the Prophecy Club, guys with the John Hagees, Perry Stones, everybody else, and I point blank asked them, can you explain this to me? I had one guy look at me, and, and he, he had been teaching this stuff for 50 years, and he said, I've never had this discussion with anybody before. I said, what do you mean you've never had the discussion? I said, you've never studied all the other views? He's only studied one view. And I'm like, so you, I said, so you're teaching people. <laughs> you're teaching people something is truth, and you've never even checked out to see if it's right? I mean, I can't comprehend it. I mean, before I ever start teaching any of this stuff, I read over 60 books on eschatology. And the only reason I'll teach the historical view, which is what already took place, is because the only thing that's not theory. Everything else is a theory. Now, I leave room for future events because I don't know. I don't have any clue. I just, I believe most everything's been fulfilled. I still am orthodox enough to believe Jesus is physically returning. And that may change in a few years. I don't know. Right now. I believe he's physically returning to the planet. But the wicked are leaving, the righteous are staying. And even then, you get to the end of the book of Revelation, the gates of the city are never shut. And there's wicked outside the gates, and the spirit and the bride are still saying, come. So that means even in the New Jerusalem, there's still some wicked. Amen. It's because it's talking about a new covenant, not a new, not a new planet. Hallelujah. So anyway, that, that stuff you can either say amen or owe me about 
And uh, I was also going to mention, and I'll stop with this, faith comes by the Bible. All right, because because faith comes by the Word of God. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I'll just close with this one. Uh, it's actually faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. It's the gospel that produces faith in us. It's the gospel that transforms us. As I mentioned earlier, the Bible itself does not, uh, not everything in the Bible produces faith in you. It, it, it's just not going to happen. It is, it's the good news that produces faith in us. There's all kinds of verses that I can pull out. And listen, people do it all the time. People walk up to people with tattoos, and they can give you something out of the book of Deuteronomy. The Bible says. I, listen, I, I'm convinced of this one thing. The older that I'm getting, I'm convinced a lot of people, especially in the Western culture, are more Biblians than they are Christians. Because they live by the Bible, but not like Jesus. Because they'll use the Bible to beat you over the head with, and they totally miss the whole point of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean the Bible's not important. Listen, I love the scriptures. I love to read the Bible. I study the Bible. I'm not demeaning it or making fun of it. It's just not the fourth person of the Godhead. All right, it doesn't say in the beginning was the Bible. All right, and the Bible was the, it says in the beginning was the word. That's Logos. That's Jesus. Jesus was in the beginning, not the Bible. The Bible wasn't even put together in the beginning. And then the question is, and I haven't got to it, maybe next week, then the question is, which Bible? Because the original canon was 80 books. And the King James was 80 books till 1881. Did you all know that? It wasn't a Catholic thing and a Protestant thing, that actually all of the Protestant reformers, their main Bible they taught out of was the Geneva Bible, and it was 80 books. It only turned to King James became 66 books in the 1880s. That was because of Baptist fundamentalists. And so, you know, the question is, wow. And then people, I have people argue with me, I only believe the 1611 King James Version. Well, the 1611 King James Version, 80 books. Because I get accused, you're, you're like, you're trying to take stuff out of the Bible. You already kicked out 14 books. What are you talking about? Huh? No, listen, I, that, that doesn't mean that I'm saying you got to go now add the four. Listen, man, I, I don't care. The law and the prophets spoke of him. That's the point. The Bible contains the word of God. Not everything in the Bible is the word of God because when the word showed up, he rebuked some of it. All right, so that's where we've made an idol out of the Bible. We become Biblians more than Christians. And that doesn't mean that we still don't love the Bible and love the scriptures. I study it, read it, consume it constantly. But when we get caught up in all of that, see, that's part of the myth and the mistranslations that we've all experienced in our life is we've been taught that, that, you know, I mean, I didn't put it in this book. I might put it in another one. But all the promises of God are yes and amen. They're yes and amen. So every promise in the book is for you. Really? Have you read some of them promises? I mean, I mean, we, we love to quote Joshua 1 verse 8. If you meditate on the law of God day and night, everything that you do will prosper and you'll have good success. But then it goes on to say, if you do, everything contained in the law. So, in other words, in order, for that, in order for that promise to be yours, you have to keep the law. 613 of them suckers that nobody does, and none of you even want to in the first place. It would be absolutely exhausting. And so, just, see, we take all these things, and we're, we're automatically, well, all those promises are for me. No, because <laughs> there's a bunch of things in the Bible that are promises that weren't for Christians, they were for Jews that don't have anything to do with yous. 
Now, that doesn't mean they're not applicable. It doesn't mean we can't. It doesn't mean God can't pull it out of the passage and completely make it alive to us when we're in a certain situation in our life. But those are the things, those are the things that have actually kept us because we've actually made an idol. I mean, one of the myths we'll maybe talk about next week is everybody always had a Bible to read. Do you know that up until the 1880s, there wasn't even an education system on the planet? Actually, 95% of the known world were illiterate. So even if you gave them a Bible, they couldn't read. Everybody was ignorant. This is the first world problem. We, 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 sit, we sit and argue. There's all kinds of third world countries that don't have a Bible in their language. But guess what? The Holy Spirit still reveals himself to them. They're still learn- they know how to be led by the Spirit. Why? Because they're led by an inner witness, not rules in a book. Hmm? That, that doesn't mean the scriptures are still not, don't misunderstand me. It doesn't mean they're still not important. But guess what? Uh, he, the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth, not the Bible. And all truth doesn't necessarily mean everything in the Bible. There's truth that's not in the Bible that the Holy Spirit will teach you. All right. There's a bunch of stuff I've learned that I learned in different textbooks that had nothing to do with the Bible. All right. If you want to learn some stuff about business, there's some great concepts in the Bible, but I'd encourage you to go get some coaching by someone who knows what to do about business. And it's truth, all right, that's going to help you in your life. Anyway, Holly, I'm, I better stop because I'll, I'll get in too much trouble. But anybody, anyway, any, any, any questions? He's like, just, he's like, just pray. No more, no more questions. It's all good. Well, listen, we're, we're going to have fun the next couple of weeks. I encourage you to bring somebody. I encourage you. I'll be at the table. Uh, make sure to grab a book. And so anyway, let me bless you. Father, I, I thank you for every one of your sons and daughters that's here tonight. But I, I thank you for, thank you for the open hearts and open minds that you have, uh, first of all, placed in leadership in this house and also then manifested uh, in, in your sons and daughters that are here. Uh, I ask that you, you, Holy Spirit, are still the one that reveals truth to us. We can hear it, but you still make it alive to us. You reveal it to us. You, you, you are the one that is the ultimate teacher. And so no matter what I said, I ask that you, you as, as the book of Revelation says that there was a book that was open and no man could open the book, but later on the lamb was standing there with the book open. Lamb of God, you're the one that opens the book. Uh, you ultimately are the one that really reveals who you are and what we are to understand and walk in. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.